26, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, to the the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened. When Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as it seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve to die. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? 
and the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kiriath-Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim, the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim, the king, sent men to Egypt. El-Natan, the son of Achbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king and killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Nevertheless, the hand of Hahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. We come to the third major division in the book called Jeremiah. In the next four chapters, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, and chapter 29, the opposition to Jeremiah's message will continue to grow. Opposition will come from the religious leaders, from the religious worshipers, from the religious establishment. Here in chapter 26, opposition will include the false prophets who resent the preaching of God's word and the ongoing declaration of the coming judgments in chapter 27 and chapter 28. And then the opposition is going to get so great and so profound that they're even going to start a letter writing campaign against Jeremiah in chapter 29. People are going to start writing letters and saying, this guy has got to go. Question. Do you think people by and large love to have their wicked behavior exposed? Do people really love it when the police show up? Do the people love it when crimes are exposed? Do the people love it when they're featured on Channel 9 News or when they're when CBS, ABC, NBC shows up and says, hey, we're doing an investigative report of you. Most people don't like their wicked behavior exposed. Most people don't like to believe that God really cares about what they're doing and that God is deeply concerned about what you're thinking and what you're doing and how you're living your life and whether or not judgment is going to come. The message to Judah and Jerusalem concerning their gross sin and their open rebellion and their falling short of God's glory and resisting God's word and resisting God's message and resisting God's prophet and the invitation to judgment. The message that Jeremiah preaches generates profound hostility and deep persecution against the prophet. As a matter of fact, here in chapter 26, as we go forward, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand something. We are in about the 26th year of the ministry of Jeremiah, which is going to last about 40 years. And it's from this point forward, if you will, 
that there's going to even form a coalition in Jerusalem. Citizens united against Jeremiah. Priests, prophets, politicians, they're going to join the club. Tell me what you think about Jeremiah. I hate him. Even members of his own family and friends are going to join citizens against Jeremiah. God wanted the people to turn from their sin. God wanted the people to trust him. But Jeremiah remains faithful to the message. You know, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves at this point in Jeremiah's ministry is how is it when God calls a person and then when God gives that person a message and then that person is faithful to that message, why is it that they suffer persecution? How is it that there is deprivation? And how is it that there is hostility? And is it possible that you can do everything right? You honor God, you obey God, you stay faithful to your wife, you stay faithful to the ministry, and all of a sudden, it's not when you were doing something really, really bad or something really, really wrong. You decided to do what was right, and you lose your job. Your wife or your husband leaves, or you decided to do what was right. You decided to stay in the light and walk in the light and obey the Lord. The message of Jeremiah has remained unchanged. The human race is depraved. God insists on righteousness. Judgment is coming. When we ask and we answer the question, well, why do certain people suffer persecution? Why is it really bad right now in Saudi Arabia for people who believe in Jesus? Why is it really bad in North Korea and parts of China? Why is it bad in certain portions of Eastern Europe? Why is it really bad in Vietnam? Why is it bad for Christians who just simply want to open up their Bible, want to pray, want to believe, want to serve God? And there are no easy answers. We can speculate. There is something about hardship and there is something about pain and there is something about deprivation and there is something about persecution and there is something about pain and hardship and persecution that will cause some people to get bitter and some people to get better. When the pressure is on, some people will go deeper and grow deeper. And they'll grow stronger in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look out into the world and we look out into the circumstances and we wonder if God is still in control. We wonder how God is able to give peace and courage and even joy in the midst of profound hostility and deprivation. And so Jeremiah is going to teach us something. He's going to begin to model for us what it's like to stand firm in the storm of hostility and persecution. Look again in verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. The beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim was maybe... 609 B.C., 608 B.C., the king's rule changed the whole dynamic of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Jehoiakim, you, you have to remember, he didn't share his father 
Josiah's religious sentiment. Jehoiakim's father was a guy named Josiah. Josiah instituted a lot of change and a lot of um, reform. In other words, during the reign of Josiah, it became popular to be a person who honored God and loved God. During the reign of Josiah, if you believed that the Bible was true and you honored God and you prayed and you offered your sacrifices and you lived a life of humility and submission to God, it wasn't that big of a deal. And so Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, although difficult, it was at least there was this sense in which there was support. But when Jehoiakim becomes the king, not only is there opposition, but there's growing hostility to the ministry of Jeremiah. What do you do when you live in political circumstances or economic circumstances on your job or in your country where the government doesn't necessarily support your deeply held religious convictions? It used to be that at least people weren't openly hostile towards the Bible, openly hostile towards God, openly hostile towards religious or Christian faith. But in the middle of Jeremiah's ministry, there is now a flagrant, open, hostile resentment to him. Jehoiakim is hostile to God, and he's hostile to the message of God. And it says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you, speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Now, many scholars have pointed out that the message that Jeremiah is giving in chapter 26 is identical almost to the message that's given in in chapter 7. The the message or the sermon that's given in chapter 7 The focus is on the sermon, but here in chapter 26, the focus is going to be on the response of the people who are listening to the message. So Jeremiah goes into the temple. He stands into the courtyard. And you'll remember that Solomon's temple was a beautiful building with an expansive courtyard. I suspect that this is during a feast day or a festival day. This is at a time when literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people are flooding into the temple in order to do their religious observances. Did Jeremiah preach the same sermon? I suspect that he did. But again, the emphasis is on their response. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Previous administration, previous king, supportive of, not hostile to, people of faith. This king, hostile towards God. Hostile towards the message of God. Hostile towards the messengers of God. And so when the political climate changes and the circumstances become even more difficult, what's the message of God? I want you to say exactly what I ask you to say, and I don't want you to hold back. I want you to be bold, and I want you to be blunt. You know, it's one thing to be bold and blunt, but it's another thing to be bold and blunt when it could cost you your job. It's another thing to be bold and blunt when it could cost you your marriage. It's another thing to be bold and blunt 
when it could cost you a friendship. Jeremiah is not to omit a single word, but he's to declare the whole message. And by the way, there is a great temptation to leave out the part of the message that causes concern to the hearer. People will often call me on my radio program and they'll ask me about people on radio. They'll ask me about people on television. They'll ask me what I think of this particular person and they'll ask me what I think of that particular person. And often I'll say, you know what, it isn't what the person is saying that is causing me the deepest concern. It's what the person fails to say. What do you mean? You know what? It's true that God loves you, and it's true that God has a plan for your life, and it's true that heaven is a real place. But it's also true that hell is a real place, and it's also true that sin is a tremendous problem. And if you leave out the message that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then that can create some real problems. And so Jeremiah is asked by the Lord, I need you to say exactly what I need you to say, and I don't need you to fudge on the message. A preacher has to be held accountable, not just simply for the the content of his message, but the preacher has to be held accountable for what he leaves out. And he gives the reason in verse 3. Look what it says. Perhaps everyone will listen. And turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Look at the passage. Part of the purpose of the message was to arouse or awaken in the heart of the person who was listening the bad news. There's something wrong. There's something evil. There's something wicked inside of me. And it needs to change. And note what the passage itself says. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way. Part of the purpose of the message was not only to arouse and awaken the heart of the person who's listening, not only to sense their sinfulness and an urgency to repent, but part of the emphasis is on each person. Because you never know who's listening to the message. You never know where they're at in their life. And you never know where they're at in their circumstance. And so when you meet that man and you meet that woman and God places them in your path. And all of a sudden the Lord prompts you and says, tell them about Jesus. And you go. Tell them about Jesus. That's too risky. Tell them they're a sinner and they're in need of a savior. Time out. People are going to think I'm some sort of freak or fanatic. But the Lord says to Jeremiah, I want to give each and every person an opportunity. I don't want anyone to stand before me and say, How come you never told me? How come you never told me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior? How come no one let me know? How come no one cared about the condition of my heart? You know, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews said, Jesus showed up 
and offered himself a living sacrifice so that you could experience hope and forgiveness. The sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus, means that sin's hindrance has been removed. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. But Jesus has made a way that your sin can completely disappear. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear and death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore in all things he has made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to help those who are tempted the author of sin is overthrown that's the devil in verse 14 sin's guilt is answered in verse 17 sin's hindrance is removed in chapter 9 verse 26 In Jesus, the gulf of sin has been bridged in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. The pollution of sin has been removed, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16, 17, and 18. The power of sin is broken, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, 17, and 18. Sin's victory is destroyed, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. In other words, the message that we have is, guess what? You don't have to be a pawn anymore. You don't have to be manipulated by sin. Part of the point of the message is that this is a message of mercy and a message of hope and a a message of redemption. And in verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 26, and it says, And you shall say to them, this is what the Lord says, If you won't listen to me, To walk in my law, which I have set before you. To heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you. Both rising up early and sending them, but you didn't heed. In other words, I've sent you a message. I did it over and over again. I did it early in the morning. I did it in the middle of the day. I did it late at night. The Lord gives a summary, by the way, of the sermon. Number one. The people have to listen to God and obey his law and his commandments. That's verse 4. Number 2. The people have to listen to God's servants, his prophets, whom he sent time and time again, only to have them rejected and persecuted time and again. Number 3. The people have to know that they will face judgment if they disobey him. That's verse 6. So, verse 5, heed the words of the servants, my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you. Pay attention, both rising up early and sending them, but you didn't heed. Now, I want you to go back in time for just a moment. I want you to just remember very quickly about chapter 25. In chapter 25... God sent the messenger of judgment, verse 9. He described the scope of judgment. I'm going to destroy you. He outlined the misery of judgment. I'm going to take away the voice of mirth, verse 10. He talked about the stroke of judgment. I'm going to punish you, verse 12. The desolation of judgment. I'm going to make things desolate for you, in verse 12. The certainty of judgment. I'm going to pass all, I'm going to bring to pass everything that I said that I would bring to pass, verse 13. The righteousness of judgment. I'm going to recompense them according to their deeds, verse 14. The effect 
act of judgment. Be mad because of the sword that I will send them. Verse 27. The crushing of judgment. Drink ye and be drunken and vomit and fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm going to send you. Verse 27. The awfulness of judgment. It's, he, he will mightily roar. Verse 30. The place of judgment. Jehovah will roar from on high. Verse 30. The shout of judgment. He will give a shout. Verse 30. The universality of judgment. He's going to plead with all the flesh. In verse 31. The subjects of judgment. For all all the wicked he will give to the sword. That's verse 31. He's given this amazing sermon about judgment. And so he's abbreviating it. Verse 6. Then I will, will make this house like Shiloh. And I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. The message of Jeremiah wasn't simply, you're sinners and you need to repent. The message of Jeremiah is there's a merciful God. There's a loving God. There's a gracious God. There's a patient God. And in his mercy and in his patience, he desires repentance and humility. And he requires dependence upon his grace. And what will happen if in humility you cry out for mercy? And what if in dependence, in, in dependence upon him you say, guess what? Sin has a hold on me. And the only way that sin's power is going to be broken is for me to concede that I have a problem. And Jesus is the satisfying solution to that problem. Then God will make a, a way of escape. That's part of the point. If the people didn't obey God, here's the message of Jeremiah. Their capital would be destroyed. The temple will be demolished. The people will be displaced. Now, you'll remember that Shiloh in the Old Testament, do you remember in the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel when in the wilderness they had the tabernacle and they made the tabernacle in the wilderness the Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle came to rest and was located when the people would worship the Lord in Joshua chapter 18. The tabernacle was the place where the glory of God showed up. This was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. But the Philistines were allowed to destroy it in about 1050 B.C. And the people of Jeremiah's day were welcome to visit Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle used to be, so that they could see that God had brought destruction. And so Jeremiah is using Shiloh as an illustration of the upcoming judgment. You know, we have those kinds of images in our own culture and society. I remember when Columbine took place and I thought, what? How many children have to die in a public school before people will wake up to the fact that the public education system that teaches that children come from nowhere and that's where they're going and life is a point of pain and a meaningless existence and that people are, are taught to believe from a very early age that they go from mud to man and that life has no meaning and that eventually people are going to act out what you teach them their whole life. Or how many times you can, I can take you right at this very moment. We can book a flight. We can go to New Orleans and we can drive through the neighborhood and you can see the devastated neighborhoods where a flood has come and displaced 100,000 people. 
I can take you to the place in New York and Manhattan that used to be the Twin Towers, 15 acres, 110 stories, that became a heaping, smoking pile of trash. And so the Lord uses this image, this image of the tabernacle in Shiloh, because the children of Israel at that particular moment in time thought it could never, ever happen. God loves his people. God loves Jerusalem. God loves the temple. He will never let anything happen to his people. He will never let anything happen to Jerusalem. He will never let anything happen to the temple. There's something about judgment on a lost world that people are unwilling to accept the truth about judgment. Eve was told, in the day that you eat the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. And the snake said, you won't die. And Eve said, you know, I know God's talked about judgment, but really, really, will it really happen? You know, I think that there's a a real reason why the vast majority of humanity is tempted to believe that a global flood never took place. Because if a global flood really did take place, then that means that you'd have to ask, why did the global flood take place? And remember, the Bible says a global flood took place because humanity had grown in such wanton wickedness that God decided that he's going to wipe out everybody except for Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. It causes people to meditate, speculate, and otherwise cogitate on, is there a God up there, and does God keep track of what's going on down here? So he judges Adam and Eve, and he judges the entire planet Earth. And uh, do you realize that the vast majority of people on the planet Earth, if you were to ask and take a poll and say, hey, do you believe that Sodom and Gomorrah really had fire come down from heaven? And do you think that these two cities were, like, pretty much wiped off the face of the planet? What do you think the vast majority would say? No. Adam and Eve in the garden? No. Flood of the old Earth? No. Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh Uh-uh. The message of Jeremiah, Jerusalem was not meant to be a curse. Jerusalem was meant to be a blessing. God wants to show mercy. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Jesus by grace that you're saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus. For by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. There's a God, a merciful God, a gracious God, a loving God. A God who's poured out his grace and his mercy. Who's made Jesus available to everyone. Once God has offered mercy... Do you know what the right response is? I'll take it. How many 
people who have ever been pulled over by a police officer who said, you know what, I'm going to give you a warning and I'm going to let you go. And the citizen said, no, I insist on the ticket. I'm guilty. Take me to jail. Make me pay my fine. I want to face the consequences. You know, that might work if if it's a traffic violation, but what if you're standing before the true and the living God and the punishment is separation from God for all of eternity? But God says it doesn't have to be that way. You can experience grace and you can experience mercy and you can experience love and it's all available through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea is that once God has offered mercy, we receive that mercy by repenting of our sin and turning to Him. The right response is to do exactly that. Is that what happens with Jeremiah's audience? Well, let's look at verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord commanded him to speak to the people that the priests and the prophets and all the people said, You're right, Jeremiah. We are wicked and sinful and we've resisted and rebelled against God. And if ever there was a time to repent, it's now. No, look at the text. We hate you, Jeremiah. They seized him, saying, you will surely die. What a way to end the sermon, huh? Can you imagine you're preaching and the crowd rushes the platform and says, let's kill the preacher. You know, sometimes it's dangerous being a preacher. There's been a few times when I've had some opposition but I've never had anyone seize me and threaten to kill me right on the spot. The pent-up anger causes the crowd to rush Jeremiah. You have to understand, in their mind, Jeremiah is a traitor. Jeremiah is undermining the nation's security. The people can't even imagine the destruction of the temple. It would be like saying to a group of American people, pointing at the Statue of Liberty and saying, I want you to, I want you to imagine that that statue is gone because it's been blown up. I want you to imagine a capital that doesn't exist or uh, the, the Washington Monument. I want, you to ex- I want you to imagine the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, the White House, and the Capitol Dome gone. Why? Because a terrorist has exploded a nuclear device in our capital, and now the capital isn't there anymore. That couldn't happen. That could never happen. Can you imagine an America without a Statue of Liberty? Can you imagine America without a Washington, D.C.? I know some of you are going, I could imagine it. And the people's thinking, God would never let that happen. And the people's thinking, they're thinking, we're Jews. God's given us Jerusalem. God allowed Solomon to build this temple. This is the place where we hear from God. And this is the place where we offer the sacrifices to God. In verse 9 it says, Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. 
They're basically saying, not only can this not happen, but you are a threat to national security. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, and they sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. The officials, they hear the commotion, they see the the riot, they see the mob, they see the people closing in on Jeremiah. They have a report that there's a riot in the temple. The officials show up. And by the way, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for judicial proceedings to take place in the gates of the city. And so all of a sudden, here are a bunch of people trying to carry out their religious obligations. Jeremiah gives this message and everybody decides that he's got to die. Has that ever happened again in the New Testament? Do you remember the story of Jesus? When he says, tear down this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And the religious leaders had a hissy fit because... He threatened the religious establishment. Do you remember when Paul brought a what they perceived to be a Gentile on the Temple Mount? A riot breaks out and the Roman police have to intervene in order to save his, no pun intended, bacon. But he kept kosher. And so the officials show up. Verse 11, and the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, this man deserves to die. For he has prophesied against the city as you have heard with your ears. And so the priests, the false prophets, serve as the prosecution. They charge Jeremiah with treason. And by the way, what is the punishment for treason? Death. By the way, is the punishment for treason even in the United States of America? Death? It can be. It can be. If the United States government charges you with treason and finds you guilty, it's a capital offense. Now you have to remember that the priests and the prophets aren't speaking God's message. They're speaking a message of optimism. They're speaking a message of hope and self-esteem to boost the people's morale. Their message is, we're Jews, this is Jerusalem, this is the temple, and yes, we're surrounded by our enemies, but guess what? We're God's chosen people with God's chosen message and God's chosen circumstances, and God would never let anything bad happen to us. And Jeremiah's message is, you've rebelled, resisted, rejected God, and something bad could really happen to you. As a matter of fact, something bad will happen to you. Unless things change radically and fundamentally in the not too distant future. But because they had received the promises of God concerning the Messiah, because the temple represented the presence of God and the promise of God and the words of God, the priests and the prophets felt secure. Sometimes we feel secure because we have a Bible and we have a church and we have a history and we have a heritage. And when Jeremiah announces the destruction of the temple, the same thing that Jesus predicted, the religious leaders believed that he was undermining their authority, undermining the people's beliefs, threatening the security of the nation. And look what Jeremiah does, because this is going to be a time of either cowardice or courage. I mean, when the mob is there and they're ready to say, hang him! And Jeremiah goes, Time out. Wait a minute. Time out. What did you hear me say? God's going to judge you? And the place is going to wind up with Shiloh? 
I meant philo, which is a Greek word for love. And peace, love, dove, bells, beads, pot, incense, crash mats, water beds, well, look, whatever you want. Hey, I'm just a garden variety prophet who unemployed and thought I'd say something provocative, didn't work. Clearly you're going to kill me, but he doesn't do that. It says, then Jeremiah spoke to the princes and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against the city with all the words that you have heard. He goes, you know what? My message isn't my own. I could wish that I had made this up just to make you mad, but it's not true. The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against the city. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has promised or pronounced against you. Can you imagine? Here's the crowd. They're ready to kill him. And here's Jeremiah looking at them face to face and toe to toe. And he says, guess what? I have you right where I want you. Guess what? It's not over yet. You can repent right now and make all of this go away. And look what it says in verse 14. For as for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper with you. Jeremiah offers his own defense. He says, look, I have the right and the authority to speak and preach God's word and God's judgment. He insists that God sent him, verse 12, that his words are true, verse 12, that Jeremiah's singular message of coming destruction and, and destruction of the capital is um, is the message, but the message is conditional in verse 13. If they amend their ways and their doings, if the people repented, God won't destroy them. He'll turn away from the hand of judgment, stay the disaster. And in humility, guess what else he does? He submits to the authority, which is the government. But he defends himself against the false accusation. He says, I understand, and by the way, it was true. The priests and the prophets and the princes served as the government. Jeremiah understood something. It is true. It is true you could kill me. You could execute me. But if you arrest me and kill me, you're going to only complicate the situation because you will have killed an innocent person. Now, God's already unhappy with the fact that you've resisted him and you've rebelled against him and you've rejected the message. How is killing an innocent man going to help your case? By the way, this is the same argument that Jesus will make when he gives the parable in the New Testament about a man who whose king was a son and he was the owner of a particular place and he sent messenger after messenger to collect what was due him and they beat some of them and injured others and one of the messengers they even killed and the king thought if I send my son surely they'll treat him with respect clearly if I send my son they'll go oh the king has sent his son it's probably a good idea to treat him with respect and honor and then Jesus says, but they took the son and they killed him. And then Jeremiah, and then Jesus said to the religious leaders, what do you think the king is going to do when he finds out? 
and even the religious leaders said he's going to come in and he is going to exact judgment for the wickedness of the people. Jeremiah was telling the truth or fabricating a message. Which do you think is the answer? Was he making up lies or was he telling the truth? He's telling the truth. In verse 15, but know for certain that if you do put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves and on the city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to speak to you these words in your hearing. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. Now something happened. And I want you to understand in verse 15 and 16. In some way, the Spirit of God has both convicted and convinced the city officials through the testimony of Jeremiah. He's spoken the truth, and the city officials rule in favor of Jeremiah. At this point, two scholars, two Jewish officials, cite reasons for the release of Jeremiah. The elders cite two legal precedents in order to set him free. In verse 17 it says, Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now, the prophet Micah, in the days of Hezekiah, preached a similar message, if not the exact same message as Jeremiah. And Hezekiah didn't kill the prophet. Instead, the king responded to the message of, of Micah. The king said, what if Micah's right? What if there's something terribly, terribly wrong? And there needs to be a fundamental change of heart and a fundamental change of policy. And that's exactly what happens. The Assyrian army is turned away. Israel is spared. Judah and Jerusalem are spared. The king responded to the message of Micah. But here's the idea. He responded by fearing the Lord and seeking God's favor. And then in verse 19, it says, did Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against him. But we are doing a great evil against ourselves. So here's the citation. Guy comes, says he's speaking for the Lord. And the elders say, you know, if he is speaking for the Lord and we kill the prophet that God has sent to us, it's going it's to go bad for us. Did God send Micah? Yes. Did God send Jeremiah? Yes. Did God send Ezekiel? Yes. Did God send Jesus? The answer is yes. So did the people by and large receive his message or reject his message? Some received it, but most rejected it. If killing him is any indication of how well the message went. 
The second case cited is a little more contemporary. There was a prophet named Uriah in verse 20 through 23. Uriah predicts this catastrophic judgment. But Jehoiakim, now remember, he's the new king. He's taking over for his father. He's reacting in a much different way. He has said the same message as Jeremiah. They plot to kill uh, him, but Uriah doesn't stand and face him. He makes a run, flees to Egypt in verse 21. Jehoiakim doesn't let the prophet escape. The king sends an ambassador to Egypt to extradite Uriah. So he sends an ambassador into Egypt and says, there's a criminal who's fleeing prosecution in our jurisdiction, and we want you to bring him back. And they bring him back, and the king executes the man in verse 23. Filled with bitter hatred, the king dumps Uriah's body into the trash pit in an unmarked grave. This doesn't sound like a good argument for Jeremiah. This sounds more like an argument for the prosecution. Well, you know, Hezekiah spared this guy. Yeah, but Jehoiakim, he, you know, he was, had the same message as Jeremiah, and he hunted him down like a dog and killed him, and then threw his body to the dogs. Hmm, what should we do? I'm going to suggest to you that the elders were giving one precedent that turned out good. And then the elders are giving another precedent that didn't turn out so good. And it may be that they're offering the example by saying, you know, the king has acted in a wicked and an evil way. So do we support him in his wickedness and in his evil? By the way, when you have an unjust administration doing weird and wicked things, good idea to support them or not support them? The leaders, when they're doing bad, it's a bad idea to support them in their wickedness. And that's the point that's made in verse 20 and verse 21 and verse 22 and verse 23 and in verse 24. In verse 24, it says, Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people who put him to death. You don't know necessarily who this guy is, so I'm going to help you. Ahikam is the royal secretary who intervenes to support Jeremiah. And if you look at 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 14, there was a prophetess named Huldah, and she receives a word from the Lord. And when she receives the word of the Lord, in order to intervene with the previous king, Ahikam is part of that entourage. And so the weight of Jeremiah's defense, the two legal precedents, his strong testimony, and then Ahikam, who is in fact the royal secretary, intervenes for Jeremiah. And basically, I'm going to suggest to you, he vouches for Jeremiah's character. He vouches for Jeremiah's ministry. He vouches for Jeremiah's faithfulness. And so the people begin to put two and two together. His courage under fire. The legal precedents that are used to try and govern the case. The commitment of the royal secretary to vouch for his character and encourage his release. Means that Jeremiah is going to be able to minister for a few years longer. It was enough to secure the release of the prophet. But part of the point is... 
He comes within a hair's breadth of being dead. You know, we as Christians will sometimes face hostility. And we as Christians may sometimes be deprived of justice. But we understand something, that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We may be singled out for ridicule. We may be ignored. We may be discriminated against. We may be abused. We may be killed. Like I said, few people desire their sins, their mistakes, their shortcomings exposed. Most people don't want to hear God's demands for righteousness. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. The truth? There are Christians tonight who are facing torture. They're facing intimidation. They're facing incarceration. And they're even facing death. Christians all over the world face hostility and deprivation. They're denied an education. They're barred from some of the most of working except the most menial labor sometimes in India. They're told by corrupt officials to pay impossible fines. They're charged with crimes they never committed. They're denied building permits so that they can't meet. They're forbidden opportunities to do something as simple as gather together and worship the Lord and open up their Bibles. Ronald Boyd McMillan wrote, quote, the meaning of life does not consist in what we make of it, but what God makes of it. The truth about your life and the truth about the meaning of life lies squarely in what God has planned for you. It was God's plan to forgive you, to act with mercy towards you. So that you can experience his love and friendship and fellowship. You know, sometimes weakness is a direct path to power. And sometimes overcoming is greater than deliverance. And sometimes extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. And in Jeremiah's life, he's going to go through the stages of persecution Opposition, personal slander, injustice, discrimination, mistreatment. But how is Jeremiah going to stand in the storm? With cowardice or courage? I'm going to tell you with courage. By telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's exactly right. Because there's something about integrity that helps you stand strong in the storm. But there's going to be more lessons in the chapters ahead. And so that's the big question that we're going to ask ourselves. How will we stand strong in the storm when we experience opposition, slander, injustice, mistreatment? We're about to find out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. 
Lord, we pray that we would look at Jeremiah and the lessons with a heart open to what you have for us. Lord, we know that there is a terrible, terrible, terrible temptation to stay silent when we know that we should speak and to only deliver part of the message instead of the whole message. But Lord, we pray that you would make us courageous instead of cowards and that we would say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In Jesus' name.